and looks at the differences between then and now. This week, The Ambassadors, Twang of Death, Episode 3, in which we go for a walkabout in 1970, which helps as we're all self-isolating in 2020. I'm Ben. I'm Luke. And I'm Nick. And here we are, and here we go, into the news from 1970. On Monday the 30th of March... The National Farmers Union on the Isle of Wight is attempting to no-platform the Isle of Wight Pop Festival, the very popular pop festival, because of concerns about sanitation, crowds, catering and noise. Now, of course, you could argue that this is a old farmers versus young pop heads argument, but it's good to bear in mind that there are environmental arguments on top of this generational conflict bit. And it's also interesting to note from the article that governments, more specifically the British government, is tacitly backing pop concerts at locations like racecourses and national parks. And indeed, later in the week, there's a long article about skinheads causing minor public disturbances across the country. So, yeah, generational conflict is in the people's heads and whether they're bald or not remains to be seen. The thing is with this is that... In the Times, they have a prediction of 100,000 people turning up. And in fact, the Isle of Wight Pop Festival 1970 went on to land a Guinness World Record for people turning up with high estimates of 700,000 people. There's a certain amount of nimbyism that's going along with this, right? So while this is backed by the government, people are loving it. And a lot of the village people kind not the village people, not the YMCA people. <laughs> no, a, lot, not a lot, a lot of the the parish councils who are against this, if they exist yet, are believing what the Times call exaggerated reports. So even back then, you've got this spreading of terror of, oh, did you did you see what happened there? Oh, I can't have it round here. Although the fact that seven hundred thousand people turn up. It shows how popular this has become to the point where the government says, yeah, well, we'll give you some cash to hold this if it you know, boosts the economy a bit. Yeah, they're definitely probably going through an economy view rather than a societal benefit view. Even though society benefited greatly from taste live at the Isle of Wight 1970. Do we think Ted Heath's been in government by now? Would they have taken a slightly different view, do you think? No nah, man, he w- he would have gone there on his on his sailing boat. <laughs> he would have been right up in there. There's also an article in the Times of London, which denotes the mostly static view of people on what constitutes a low-paid worker in the United Kingdom, with evidence of the older being more modest with their views on pay, and of course those with higher salaries giving higher figures for a low income. It's interesting that they're talking about income, because. There's also an incomes policy. Indeed, there was a national board for prices and incomes, which was introduced by Wilson's government in 1965 to manage wages, prices and inflation 
It's just one of those things that the post-war consensus liked to do. It had mixed success throughout the 1970s with various restraints on wages increases and price increases working, mostly at the beginning of the decade or not, especially towards the end of the decade with Callaghan's pay policy partly contributing towards the winter of discontent and therefore the rise of Thatcherism and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and the 2000s. And you get the point. When, when did they scrap this board? I'm assuming Thatcher must have done Thatcher. when she came in. 1979, pretty much. Literally, <laughs> she comes in and she's like, nah, right, that's gone. <laughs> well, yeah, because yeah, obviously her and her monetarist free market principles is like, nah, mate, let the, let the markets win. Yeah, I suppose that's the last time we had, we switched from one government of a totally different ideology to another. Like, no other government since then has ever had such radically different ideologies. And finally, on Thursday the 2nd of April, it's the end of a five-year strike war between Filipino and Mexican farm workers. Not between the two, they were part of the same side, because they worked in vineyards in California, and they were protesting against the labour exploitation of farm workers. There was a continuous grassroots fight lasting between 1965 and 1970, and around a thousand strikes took place across the country. It culminated in the boycott of non-union grapes by the consumers, the American public, which forced the vineyard owners to make a deal which improved the wages and working conditions of the Filipinos and the Mexicans, and all farm workers, to be honest. Just scraping in at the beginning of the 1970s, this civil rights working class movement is an example of unionism, which, of course, united workers from different countries to strike to improve their working rights. And indeed, the 1970s is the decade of union dominance, at least in Britain, which has its impacts on the economies of most Western nations. But it is nevertheless interesting to read an article about working class struggles in other capitalist countries. Yeah, was it Donald Trump, the current American president, uh, speaking as of early 2020? He got elected partly on a platform of going, calling Mexicans rapists and criminals and drug dealers, etc. Although some of them are good people, he assumes. Um, and yet here we go. Right, This isn't a new thing that you've got Mexicans and Filipinos in California, you know, as farm pickers. So like this is something that only just happened recently. So it's interesting that even 50 years ago, you had lots of Mexicans and Filipinos in American farms in California. So in that instance, nothing has changed. Uh, the other instance is that has really changed is this idea of customers and consumers having solidarity with unions. That is an alien concept in the 21st century, I would say. It's it's an odd idea to think of consumers backing a strike. So there we are. Differences and similarities from 50 years ago to now, as seen in the news from 50 years ago. That indeed was the news, and now we shall get into the Ambassadors of Death episode 3. There is a lot to this jam-packed episode. The astronauts aren't astronauts, the conspirators are both secretive and cooperative, and that furthers their plans, which are sort of known and sort of not known. Radiation is bandied about everywhere, and then there's a car chase at the end just to keep us amused. 
David Whittaker slash Malcolm Hulk is certainly trying hard. This episode does James Bond so much better than Spyfall. This is this is Doctor Who doing James Bond and so much better than anything in New Who. This one is an homage. Spyfall is a pastiche, I would argue. Interesting. There is a very important distinction that this episode goes on the side of. And it would be the one that Philip Hinchcliffe would start taking in the mid-70s with Doctor Who. With gothic horror. Mm. Aye. Doctor Who rips stuff off very well. Well, well, this is very much like uh, Sean Connery James Bond films. Uh, And as much as it's got some of the elements of the later ones where the the van changes, uh, it's a facade of his later films where they get a little bit more, you know, fanciful. But it's also got some like from Russia with Love where it's really realistic and gritty, like, you know, where the... The henchmen get buried in like, like a slurry pit or whatever, whatever quarry. So what I've done is pour all of my brain into looking into spacesuit films from basically the beginning of cinema until the 70s. So from the 1890s until about the 1950s, in terms of actual space spacesuit stuff going on, you don't really get much because there wasn't really any science behind it, and there wasn't any motivation either. Nobody really cared. When you get the 50s, something really interesting happens. Number one, you get a bunch of sci-fi films which love explosions. What you also get parallel to that is spacesuit films that make us look forward to a better time. So they represent space travel and the strength and durability of humanity and the fact that we are going outside of our atmosphere. We return to prosperity, which is our pre-war life. However, the explosion films kind of win out, so those films didn't get funded much, and they sort of died away. In the 60s, you had actual real science and space stuff, which made these sorts of idea films less necessary. And... From 1969 onward, Star Trek basically eliminated the need for spacesuits in films because Kirk would be wandering around an alien planet, breathing, talking English to everyone, and everyone makes the same joke about, oh, it's so good that they speak English on this foreign planet and there's a sun and a breathable atmosphere, but it seems that nobody really cared except nerds and book writers. Troughs and peaks between positive outlooks on space travel bordering on the fantastical versus the sharp 180 degree turn into realistic sci-fi. Sort of. It's more that these ideas exist parallel to each other and some writers choose to explore them and some don't. And I will be arguing that this episode kind of takes a good spread from both. It's got all the like the hard sci-fi dressing there, but then they also start talking about radiation as though it's a disease, which is ludicrous. But I will be spreading more of what I have to say throughout this episode. Like some contagious radiation. Sure. Okay then, let's don our spacesuits and head out further into this episode, shall we? So, surprise, surprise, the space capsule is empty. In the place of the three astronauts is a sound-detecting tape recorder, which is just like in The Rescue. David Whittaker likes tape recorders, it seems. Anyways, somebody's put it in there and kidnapped the astronauts during a fake security check, which fooled everyone, including the Brigadier. 
And we also discover that the capsule's very radioactive as well. Cut to the conspirators <laughs> of death who have the astronauts and they are absorbing radiation, which is contrary to all physics. I really don't like the radiation as a disease, but I really like the fact that the capsule is radioactive, but it isn't outside because that's alpha radiation, which uh, can't get through air. Uh, So that is a type of radiation that exists. So it could be radioactive in there, but it wouldn't get out even if you open the capsule up. So Mm. that is as as opposed to beta and gamma radiation. Yes. Yeah. Alpha radiation is a helium nucleus and that can't travel through like uh, a few centimeters of air. Uh, Beta is an electron that can travel a bit further. Uh, You need probably like some aluminium to stop it. And then gamma, well. We know gamma radiation from like the Hulk and whatever, that just goes through anything. You need loads of lead to stop that. It's nice that that does work in science. Is this as good as the resolution to, what was it, the episode three or four cliffhanger in the Silurians, where the Doctor just goes, shakes his hand and says, how do you do, whatever. It's an interesting resolution. It's, it's not as good as that one, I guess, but it is it is an interesting one, surely, right? It keeps the story moving, but it's not a sudden thud in Doctor Who history. The Brigadier and the Doctor have an argument with the Minister, who introduces them to the main conspirator, General Carrington, head of the Space Security Department and previous astronaut on the previous Mars probe. He explains that he's responsible for everything and then tells the lie that the capsule went through a contagious radiation belt that no one's ever heard of before. Oh God, a virus. Please no, not now. Doctor wants to see the astronauts for himself, so he, the Brigadier, Liz, and the General go to see them. But the conspirators <coughs> of death are taking them from one safe house to another, murdering their evidence along the way, and travelling in the mysterious sign-changing van. The only evidence left is residual radiation left from the astronauts, who can kill most of the goons in charge of of the transport operation because, quote, they're walking reactors, unquote, and the goons' bodies are dumped in a gravel pit. So what I found interesting here was the imagery of gangs, basically. I've called it a commoner conspiracy because everyone's wearing flat caps. Yeah. So. Well, another thing I want to say is they're in, was it Hey Ho Launders Limited is what's on the, um, the van, isn't it? Isn't hey ho, laundries and uh, Silcott bakeries, yeah. Well, it switches that, but the issue is hey ho. Well, I thought it says launders, not laundry. Uh, well, I the, think they're not laundries as do. in money launders, Nick. <laughs> yeah, no, oh, no, I don't know. No, it says launders as in as in yeah, and no, washing. That's the joke about this is because it's a, you always that they're washing your laundries in to kill people. They're hired killers. That's the joke, isn't it? Like. Take oh, you to the cleaners. Right. I'm going to take, take you to, to the, the cleaners. cleaners. Thank you very much. I get you now. Oh, blimey. Uh, God, that took a long time. Yes. I'm, so, I'm amazed that you guys didn't get that right away, to be fair. But yeah, yeah, no, no. So I'm thinking that feels like it must be Malcolm Hulk. It's got to be Malcolm Hulk who did that. It's just that little, little detail there. <laughs> so the look of the spacesuits. So in these ones, you would expect in 1970 the spacesuits to look a lot more realistic 
because there's a growing trend towards it around this time. Instead, these spacesuits, in terms of sci-fi, are like 10, 15 years out of date, because after World War II, spacesuits tended to reflect ones that were used by aircraft men, or they would kind of look like scuba diving suits around this time, as around the time of the 50s as well. I don't know if it's deliberately looking backwards to an earlier time and sort of referencing more explosiony films, or if the BBC was just poor. Maybe even suggests that like, the writers are a bit behind the curve and the BBC art department or uh, or the costume department, um, because the most recent one where they're wearing spacesuits that I can think of is the the moon base, you know, and they yes. have and they have that really outdated look of where they've got a fishbowl on their head. At least here, they've kind of gone where there's only a little like there's a visor uh, in front of them, and the rest of it is you know a, a, a stronger structure on the helmet. So this is advanced probably from something that was really out of date in 1967. Probably middle-aged people in the costume department and middle-aged people writing who haven't kept up with the science enough. And mm. and their yeah. view of it looks to back to the 50s. Maybe they were the only person who didn't watch the moon landings. <laughs> well, because they, they were busy afford... working on the costumes. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, they probably couldn't afford a suit that looks like... Uh, the moon landing suit, the Impossible Planet base suit, doesn't look like a real spacesuit either. So um, they're double colours compared to 2001, which has a red spacesuit that specifically pops off the screen, whereas these ones fade more into the background. Carrington wanted to keep the astronauts quiet because contagious radiation is a dangerous weapon in the hands of a foreign power. The Doctor is having none of it and surmises that the astronauts are still in space and whomever has come to Earth is not human. The Doctor, and Professor Cornish, therefore, want to go back into space to retrieve the astronauts. They need authority from the Minister to do that, who is working with the conspirators <coughs> of death, and understandably does not want that to happen. Cornish basically blackmails the Minister to go ahead. So Carrington and the minister make plans to stop that from happening. So the government is blackmailed because Professor Cornish threatens to go to the news and hold a press conference. And I have logged this for my grand news babble for episode seven, when Luke finally has a breakdown about the news in this serial. <laughs> yeah, it's it's again, it's, it is free for free on, on how media is portrayed in Doctor Who in this season. Mm. Don't get a full house in Inferno, really. Oh, I'm oh. going to stretch my point until the very end. I'm going to find media in Inferno. It's going to all be a metaphor for the media. I mean, the only one the only one I can think of is that deleted scene of the radio broadcast. Oh, yeah. I'm going to say that the fact they deleted it means something. I don't <laughs> know. I'll make something up. Please stop suck, with the media. To... Oh, dear. This seems to work. Which is odd that him saying, oh, I'll just go talk to the press. I'm like trying to picture this now. Um, Cornish would get arrested very, very quickly, wouldn't he? Now, if he just said to the minister, yeah, I'm going to just whistle blow on you to the media, it, like 
by giving a press conference. You get, <laughs> they wouldn't let that happen. Oh, yeah, in today's authoritarian well, government. Yeah, sure. But have you not considered the fact that the minister is just slightly a bit rubbish? <laughs> have you also well, I mean, considered the fact that he says, oh, uh, yes, OK, and then he sends goons out to kill Liz? <laughs> There's a certain naivety that existed 50 years ago, or at least we've become more cynical in our entire civilization. Where in- it is interesting that he feels empowered enough to say it and then stay where he is and not run off to the Ecuadorian embassy. Riot goon Regan, Regoon, no, and disgraced Dr. Lennox have the astronauts at their secret hideout. As the radiation drops, astronauts get weaker. Therefore, they need to get more radiation. So the conspirators steal a few isotopes and all is well with these astronauts. So spacesuits show a few things. On one hand, you've got the strength and the durability of humanity. We're able to develop these things that allow us to walk on other planets. You've also got us sort of abandoning your humanity. You're you're donning a disguise as you walk about these places. And there's a really good quote by a man named Gary Westfall who says, on the other hand, they show we are unprepared beyond the cradle of Earth. They show that space is very dangerous. And what I'm going to say is that the commoner conspiracy that we actually know quite a lot about against these undeveloped spacesuit monsters show just how horrible space can be. Because on one hand, we have a threat that we know actually quite a lot about and that we understand because conspiracy things are really easy to come by in this sort of time period. But on the other hand, you have this real unknown of space that precedes the eldritch horrors that Holmes would be writing about later. You have this complexity versus this pettiness that I believe makes space even deadlier. And the fact that these spacesuit monsters can blow you up just makes it cool to watch. And you have the conspiracy, which is also cool to watch. Hmm. It's it's an interesting marriage between the scientific knowns and the scientific unknowns. It absolutely is. It's sci-fi deep in realism and then absolute crazy fantasy, which terrifies the living daylights out of you. Because mm. it might have a grain of truth to it. And so many of these sorts of films around the time had a real problem mixing human drama with the fantastical elements. A lot of the time you had the techies on the ground saying, what can you see? Is perhaps there a monster out there? Versus the adventurer in space saying, ah, yes, I think I've got this, Houston. I've got my space sword. This one, I think, is tackling that in a really interesting way. The capsule is taking a while to get ready, and Cornish suspects that the minister is the reason why. The brig goes to investigate the dead goons in the gravel pit in Hertfordshire, and Liz is sent to join him whilst the doctor works to get the recovery capsule working. But Liz, going to join the brig, is a trap to draw her, her large floppy hat, and the doctor away to be captured by stuntmen so that the capsule can't go into space. Liz is chased by said stuntman on road and on foot to a weir where she um, punches them for attempting to do their job before trying to escape by throwing herself over a railing 
and into certain watery doom. Always think about Indiana Jones, where he has the big hat, so that that way a stuntman is concealed behind it. We haven't got any of that digital trickery that we have in the 21st century. The fact that you have stuntmen being punched in the face is cool. But if you look at someone like Robot of Sherwood, where it's, you know, Ben Miller flailing around going, ah, in front of a green screen, it just looks like garbage. And it's so boring. There's no weight to anything anymore. I hate all media that isn't from the 70s onwards. It's just a waste of time. So well, what we what we can learn from there is that what? please don't overuse colour separation overlay. <laughs> Fifty years ago and now. To bring an extra point to your complaining about post seventies content, Luke. Well, I can't wait to look forward to spending eighteen months having to watch reruns. Hey, we get to rewatch some seventies stuff, Luke. Woohoo! Yay! Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, whole society's been derailed now. So, well, hey. Yes. We've all gone mad. We have thrown ourselves over the railing and into the weir. If only we were stuntmen and could <laughs> understand what we're doing by throwing ourselves over the weir. Well, we're, we're creating havoc. You stole my joke. <laughs> oh, <God laughs> we, we have created havoc. It just goes to show what terrible minds we Doctor Who fans have when looking at these episodes from 50 years ago. That was Doctor Who 50 years ago, just about. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Blogspot, which redirects to iTunes. Leave positive comments there. It helps, especially after this episode. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube, where you can like, comment and subscribe. You can do that if you like. <clears throat> we shall be back next week to hopefully dry ourselves off from our dip in the weir in episode four of The Ambassadors of Death. Until then, I've been Ben. I've been Luke. And I've been Nick. Wear those spacesuits, self-isolate. Thank you. Goodbye.